0: This is writer and game designer
1: Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode
1: include... Location-based play.
0: Anti-vaxxers as Gnostics.
1: And my DundraCon book book haul.
0: Ken, do you know anything about kitties?
1: I might.
0: But do you know about magical kitties?
1: I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem.
0: In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and
1: save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes, like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human
0: problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans.
1: The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure.
0: A soul- play graphic novel adventure
1: within moments of opening it kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game
0: run magical kitties save the day for kids as young
1: as six years old and for everyone else who loves kitties
0: a great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM
1: if you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games
0: magical kitties save the day is the perfect game to do it do you mean perfect I also do not Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more into... Oh my goodness. This, um, this is not just the standard basement that we normally, this is kind of a, look at, look at that, Robin. There's, there's a cantilever holding the roof up. And I, I think that's a, 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 coin. Maybe it's a groin. I can't tell. It's up there in the roof. Maybe it's even a pendentive. My goodness. Something has caused the architecture hut to encompass, as it does all lesser arts, the gaming hut. <laughs> and that something is a question from beloved Patreon backer, Alexander Araballo who asks, I'm an architecture student, can please be nice, Uh, side note, I'm always nice, I'm especially nice to architecture students, doing his thesis on the architecturalization of a role-playing game. In essence, the project will be a game that I take my jurors through as players with arguments and speculation about how the methods and theories could be applied more broadly. The game will be centered around a handful of physical locations, which will have installations to augment and enable the game experience. This sounds like a LARP. All that said... Oh, was that was that mean? Robin, is calling something a LARP mean? <laughs> that, that wasn't mean, except possibly to LARPs. Yeah, well. All that said, do you have any tips for how to put together a location-centric game... How to make it open enough that different people will have very different experiences with it, or any tips at all about this possibly ridiculous thing that I'm doing. First of all, Alexander, you got to get a hold of yourself. If you go out and you expect meanness and you call your own project ridiculous, you're not going to have a good life as an architect. You've got to, you know, smash stuff you don't like with your cane like Frank Lloyd Wright did. That's what that's what architects <laughs> yeah, so do. Yeah, you have to work on your arrogance. Exactly. You've got to, you know, you know, you know, hold your head up high and say It's not my fault the client doesn't like it. That's architect talk. Take it to the heavens, you and Zeus, gods of architecture together. Anyways, aside from that tell, Robin, we've talked about location-centric games before in the sense of making a scenario to highlight a specific kind of location. Do we have ideas for playing a game in what sounds like a physical location? Is this just like LARPing in a castle? Is this something else? what is it, Robin? What does Alexander want that he doesn't know he wants? Well,
0: it sounds like more of a guided experience than a a LARP, which is typically a whole bunch of parallel things going at once. Sounds like Mm -hmm. there's a, a narrative going on and that this will happen more than once if we care about whether it will have a different replay value for different people or perhaps just feel like it has meaningful choice rather than just the players being led around the nose from location to location. Because that's the issue with any sort of plot line that is about moving between a series of physical spaces is, is the player choosing, or the character choosing, I guess, uh, both of them, Mm -hmm. to move from one location to the other? Or are they being led by a tour guide? And you, first of all, want to avoid the thing where you're being toured around. I guess the most obvious thing is you literally are taken from place to place. And each place you're at, there's a little puzzle or problem that you solve, whether it's an interpersonal one or a physical one or, or so forth. But I think we're trying to do something more interesting than that and also more architectural than that somehow. So mm. the most obvious plot line, aside from being toured around by somebody from one location to another, is a physical quest or a search or a treasure hunt, or yep. uh, one step up from that would be the investigation, where you're still on a treasure hunt, but the treasure that you're looking for uh, is the truth. And it would seem to me that the way to ensure maximal choice in a way that hits at the core activity of this game, which is connecting a bunch of different locations to each other, is to give the uh, player, at least at first, a choice of which location to go to after the first. So like a gumshoe scenario, you have an opening location, and there at that location you get news of at least two different other locations that you could go to, And the next one you go to either creates or forecloses certain options that will then continue to affect the other locations on the map. And so you you have a map that is physically where all of these locations are in space. Presumably, they're all closely connected. You don't want to have to, you know, I I don't imagine Alexander's making his players get on a bus to another town or anything. And so there's the physical map, and then there's the map of choices between those locations and why it matters you choose to go at them in a particular order
1: i'm gonna say that this sounds like it could be very similar to a theater event that i attended in chicago in 2018 it was called harrow house and it was basically a haunted house but it had drama aspects to it in that Every now and again, the actors would show up and act out a scene. Maybe it was a scene from a haunting or it was, you know, there were monsters in the basement that Harrow had summoned from the outer depths with his non-Euclidean architecture. There was video and audio diaries you could listen to and watch. So it was very much a puzzle solving adventure. You're meant to, in your head, build the story of the evil architect, uh, Milton Harrow, and as you do that, you're going through the haunted house and having scary times like you do in a haunted house with moments of theater and in the sort of interactive theater tradition that we have in Chicago and I'm sure other lesser cities where the audience sort of wanders through the stage and the play occurs as they're there. And all of that came together in a, you know, a pretty fun haunted house. I'll say that and a, a pretty good uh, horror theater experience as well. And it sounds like. With the addition of more free will than just, do I pick up the phone and listen to the narrator? Do I have activities that I can do in the room that will uh, alter the story? And that's what moves it from Haunted House or Dark Ride into a role-playing game. I think that that might actually not be a terrible model, that you have this haunted space or this mysterious space again it doesn't have to be a haunting it can be a sort of a lara croft tomb raidery kind of a thing or a john belairs you know searching for the mysterious explanation type haunted location and the experience is you know down to how compelling can you make first of all the hook the why am i in this building as opposed to you know where um We have to judge this guy's thesis, which is maybe it is a good way to get players once, but I don't know if it works twice. And then the other aspect of it is that you have to have the activities in the room potentially spawn you into other rooms so that your goal, I think, as the designer is for everyone to have gone through every room, but the order, massive near Lothotep style is almost arbitrary and each room could send you into another room depending on what sort of takeaway informationally or emotionally you come away from it with. And it may even be a matter of here is the kitchen where, you know, we can, you can solve the haunting and then it becomes a place where you can, you know, enjoy a snack or get, take a refuge or have a moment. And then that gives you a contrast with the rest of the house. I feel like, you know, without knowing any more specifics, we are sort of in this generic space, but I think that your notion of it. Being a haunt or an investigation is kind of the the key point, right? If you're looking at something that has to be physically connected, it, it has to be even more uh, physically determined than just a dungeon, right?
0: Right. Uh, but I think it also has to be relevant to architecture in yeah, some way right. to have your jurors approve your architecture thesis. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess what we're looking at here, first of all, is perhaps a almost an archaeological inquiry into. You know, who is the architect who built all of these things? Or mm-hmm. what was the civilization that used this architecture? Or what, you know, what uh, fatal mistakes of architecture do we find here that uh, brought about a
1: doom? This room is haunted by the Bauhaus!
0: <laughs> yeah, that might be a little, <laughs> the, the cheesy version. Right. but
1: Like Corbusier has risen from the grave again!
0: Yeah, so
1: I guess it's also a
0: question of how what the interactions are with the physical space when you get there and what, what it tells you, what either narrative tells you about architecture or what architecture tells you about narrative. So, so I guess to take a step back, is there a, a connection between architecture and narrative and role playing? We're used to, you know, these rooms together become a story and the, the story varies depending on the order in which you go at them. Uh, we've hit that already. Our places narrative. I know in uh, tours of Lovecraft the destinations of which more in a future episode. <laughs> you mention that story used to be about place in a way that it isn't as much anymore. It's become about people. What sort of stories about place suggest a narrative that Alexander could use?
1: I mean, when you ask is architecture narrative? Um, obviously you look at any Roman Catholic cathedral. It's a narrative. It's meant to be a narrative. It's a narrative in stone. You see the stations of the cross. You see the, you know, risen altar in the east. The whole architecture itself tells a series of interconnected stories. And so you could, you know, secularize that, obviously, to an extent, you know, architecture at the very least conveys meaning obviously, whether or not it conveys serial meaning in the sense that we usually refer to narrative. But as you say, from the very beginnings of the hobby, we're used to connecting architecture and narrative because that's literally what the dungeon is. It's, you know, it is architecture as narrative and it's architecture as forking paths narrative in many cases, but it's very much you go through this physical space defined physically with physical components and characteristics. You map it even. And at the end, you know more about the truth of this land or this story or this wizard than you did going in. And that is the core original activity of of role-playing. So, I feel like, in a way, the hard part is not figuring out how to architecturalize space. The hard part is explaining it to people who haven't been doing it instinctively since they were 10. And... The degree to which you can take some of those same insights from the dungeon crawl and apply them as cathedral builders do to a a great cathedral or people, uh, even museum construction is about, you know, allowing narrative to happen within a space, especially within a permanent uh, collection. But if you look at a a given museum exhibit, it's going to be going through a bunch of rooms and it's going to be telling the little story of, you know, whoever the artist is in many cases or putting these paintings together to create a dialogue between them in the same way that architects create dialogue between space and shape and light and uh, everything else in a building. So to an extent, the job is to sort of, I mean, you're, you're almost got a, you know, an embarrassment of riches and the job is to figure out how to take the riot of meaning that, you know, a cathedral has and pull it down into oh, no, this is the story of the time that the, you know, canon accidentally summoned a ghost and hid it in the pulpit. And now it's an M.R. James story, right? And you have to take the huge amounts of meaning and story that are in most buildings and pull them down into a more simplified, you know, this is a haunted house. This is a mystery to solve. This is a treasure hunt. We're finding where X marks the spot. And, And so... To an extent, it's a lot of it is just going to be finding where the architecture is already saying something and amplifying it to drown out the other things the architecture's saying.
0: It seems like the highfaluting, high-level version of this would be: you know that this series of locations tells a story, and your job as a revisionist psychogeographers is to alter its meaning so that the architecture no longer serves the propaganda purpose that was originally constructed. For that, you are essentially, you know, doing an ideological purification of an evil architect's work. And so, this was, you know, originally the sacrifice chamber, and this was uh, the room that members of the public would go into to feel the the power of the the uh, regime. And there's been a new regime, I guess, this is almost turning into an aftermath scenario. And we have, we we can't afford. There's been a revolution. We can't afford to just knock this building down. We have to turn this from the temple of political evil into the people's hall. Uh, what do we do to change these spaces and have them transmit another different meaning while also possibly running into a ghost because, right. you know, ghosts. Yeah.
1: Right. In a way, this is like uh day turning Beetlejuice uh, because if you remember the, the bad guy in Beetlejuice is the architect that wants to remodel the house. And to detour it and turn it from, you know, the sort of uh, rooted colonial Gothic history that it embodies into a modernist art expression and, you know, attract people from New York, God forbid. And so if you take that story and you flip it so that the original Gothic house is, in fact, evil is sort of, you know, a, a hill house like in Shirley Jackson, then you are your heroic interior decorators, your heroic uh, remodelers trying to take a house that is born bad and, you know, bring it up good, uh, put some constraints on it, teach it to fly okay. right. Now
0: people will be mad if I don't mention this is a fe- turning into a feng shui scenario, but hopefully without <laughs> the wire foo or uh, guns going off.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, you could, you know, localize a feng shui scenario down from the whole city or from one you know, large ceremonial location into the funk. I mean, feng shui applies to individual buildings, obviously.
0: Well, I think now that we've, uh, uh, I-, I hope this is uh, ambitious in a good way instead of weirdly confusing. But uh, <laughs> now that we've written your thesis for you, Alexander, yeah. uh, I think we've we've once again shown the value of uh, Patreon uh, membership. And uh, anyone else who needs a thesis written verbally in fifteen minutes, uh, let us know. But I-, I think now it's time for us to uh, creep into another hut. Or Corner, in this case.
1: Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit
0: a vampire, yeah, yeah,
1: we've been through all this. ...and the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries...
0: For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it! But it doesn't have Varna... It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or bibliomancy...
1: ...or a hand of glory, or red mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports.
0: If only someone could gather up all that... Material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact.
1: Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the Dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pellgrain store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula
0: Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print.
1: Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit bundle. The Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, The Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in Print. Get
0: 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions, and the cuttings from the dossier PDF, entirely free, with the code VAMP2021.
1: And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pell store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code vamp twenty twenty one. For plenty of savings, and lots of cuttings. The password you had to say at the entrance, the mysterious re dagger, and the fact that you're probably a jobless lowlife, <laughs> welcome you once more into the hut that's so badly designed and unfinished that it's only a corner. It is, of course, the conspiracy corner. Uh Robin, you had a question for the conspiracy corner. I guess we want to shout it into the corner and see what echoes back. And your question was are hardcore conspiratorial anti-vaxxers the gnostics of our day? And I think you posed the question, Robin. That means you get first crack at answering it, am I correct? Or did you expect me to pick that back up? Right. But I'm going to throw it back to you a bit uh-huh. uh,
0: to remind people who the the gnostics were as mm-hmm. we test uh, I guess this is the test the analogy hut as well. Okay, as right. As the
1: yeah, right. Okay. Um, the Gnostics, obviously, uh, Gnosticism as a philosophy is different from Gnosticism as a social and religious movement, but they began as the same thing in the Near East circa first century AD. Although there is some evidence of Gnostic thought predating Christianity, it basically begins as a response to slash heresy of Christian revelation, which is to say, yes, there is a revelation. Yes, there is a giant and magnificent truth, but no, contra Christ's teaching, it's not for everybody because everybody is not worthy to receive it. There are classes of people that have the divine spark that are capable of receiving revelation, and there are classes of people that sadly are not. And we, the Gnostics, because we have practiced this revelation, I suppose if you're a more open type Gnostic, you practice this revelation, you can awaken a divine spark within yourself. That's sort of the happy-go-lucky Gurdjieffian version of Gnosticism. Or, nope, you can't do it. All you can do is recognize the divine spark in others and assemble a like-minded sect to hopefully either separate yourself from the world, because of course Gnosticism gets tied very, very rapidly in with Manichaeanism, which is the dividing everything into uh, good and evil, and the world is usually counted as evil for some reason. See jobless low lives, supra. But the Gnostic concept, the core Gnostic concept is there is a higher world that can be perceived thanks to fragments of it in our world. Generally, most people can't perceive it. Again, as I say, the, the fuzzy, happy Gnosticism of Gurdjieff says people can be Woken up to it, you can awaken a sleeper, you can t- turn a mud person into a spark person. But generally and traditionally, Gnosticism at the very least celebrates the fact that we, the Gnostics, because the word comes from the Greek gnosis, meaning knowledge, know things and the sheeple, the mud people, the animal people, the, and you get the point, don't. And right. that that is that sort of central insight basically informs virtually all conspiracy theory. Because of course, if you know the truth, about the Kennedy assassination and the sheep were out there thinking it was just some guy with a mail order rifle, then you're better than them because you have inside knowledge that they do not have. And that sort of self-congratulatory component of Gnosticism is also a big part of what drives conspiracy theory, as well as the sort of, you know, drive to explain why against all justice, you personally have been done dirt by the universe, which is right. another you know big impulse. Yes,
0: but- and that's the the key thing in this in this analogy, if it works, is that the world is controlled by the demiurge, mm-hmm. a devil like figure who's who's in charge, and the the good figures, the archons. You know they they screwed up, and this is I think the idea that discovering that the world is evil is part of. Uh, most conspiracy theories, and we're going to explore the extent to which it is part of the. And of course, there are many anti-vax isms, and they overlap in all sorts of ways with other uh, conspiracy theories. Some of which are attempting to achieve power in the material world in ways that we don't want them to. And so, this is, I i think, that the hook that we're going to hang the rest of this exploration on. And another uh, hook is that, and so I guess we want to specify by hardcore conspiratorial anti-vaxxers, we're talking about that it's a pandemic that the uh, evil forces who run the world have created this on purpose, and some versions of it that doctors and nurses are profiting off of COVID treatment.
1: And the Pfizer vaccine has, you know, tiny computer chips in it and all of that good stuff.
0: Yeah. So that's the one we're talking about, not just the, oh, young people don't need to get vaccinated. And young people get vaccinated.
1: Yeah, everyone should get vaccinated. But before you go into this, I also want to mention that it draws – one of the things that makes any conspiracy theory powerful is if it draws on more than one strain. So, it draws – and I think we will demonstrate that it does indeed draw on that Gnostic notion. But also, it comes from a very, 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 very very powerful strain of of, uh, belief called toxophobia, namely the fear of being poisoned. And – this has been joined with conspiratorial thinking as far back as we have conspiratorial thinking in the West. So the the Romans used to say the dirty, rotten worshippers of Bacchus are out there poisoning everybody and doing bad things. And so that. You know, basic notion that someone is out there poisoning you or that you can be poisoned without your knowledge, I think feeds very strongly into this demiurgic notion that the world is evil. And so you're like, oh, I can't eat corn. It's, it's full of poisons, right? The, those n- bastards at Monsanto have messed up all the corn and now I can't be eating corn. And right. on one hand, the people at Monsanto generally are bastards eating too much hcfs is absolutely bad for you but once you take it to the sort of you know conspiratorial extreme then toxophobia and conspiracy thinking have blended in a really powerful alloy that is very very hard to separate and the great thing of course about toxophobia is it's no respecter of persons because as the romans demonstrated you can just apply it to the outgroup. you can say well those bad people are spreading disease. And of course that was, you know, during the Black Death, people said, "Oh, the Jews are spreading the disease by poisoning the wells." And so all the way down to, you know, now, it's the, you know, uh guys in Idaho are spreading the disease by not getting vaccinated, which is again not true, but it's a powerful belief set, and that belief set does not necessarily track, you know, where you might think well, everyone on this side thinks X. Well, everyone thinks X because People are broken and terrible,
0: right? And and who wants to mess with corn witches? This is essentially narcissism Is taking the uh, the fear of uh, witches, uh, intelligent other people, sorcerers that you can mm-hmm. blame for your problems, and saying, "Well, you know, they're in charge." And as we've discussed previously on the show, there are some cultures that are uh, witch believing cultures, and some that aren't, and definitely the <laughs> uh, Anglo Saxon culture is responsible for a lot of witch burning. And it would be interesting, I think, but beyond the purview of this segment to look at to what extent anti-vax conspiracies uh, have more purchase in the roughly 60% of cultures that also have a witch belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're here to talk about Gnosticism and the, uh, and of course, there are, as there are many Gnosticisms, there are many theories about Gnosticism, but the the one that we can hang our coat on in this time is one that says, in effect, just like Christianity is an outgrowth of Judaism, that Gnostic Christianity, the the Gnostic response to Christianity, Gnostic counter-Christianity, comes out of a Gnostic counter-Judaism. And that that begins in Egypt when uh, the Romans take over in 31 BC. The Romans come along and they uh, upend the Ptolemaic rule and its state-run economy, and they introduce privatization they uh, take a bunch of state-run lands and they give it to their favorite people you can suddenly buy lands and what has become a or or what is originally a sort of a flat social structure then becomes considerably more complex where uh, you have more chance to prosper and more chance to be screwed and very much among the people who have a chance to prosper or be screwed is the jewish community living in egypt at that time and this uh, according to at least one strain of scholarship, is where the seeds of Gnosticism are planted, and then they continue on uh, into the uh, l- later Gnosticism that you were discussing, Ken. And so it's a free-floating anti It's a way to look at a situation. And as you point out, the people embracing Gnosticism are not necessarily the winners, <laughs> but the ones figuring out why they've been disrupted. Uh, you don't believe that the world is terrible if you're doing if things are going well for you. And so this is a doctrine that takes the idea. Of, well, suddenly you can get ahead in the world, and part of that goes into narcissism—a desire for individuality and and freedom. But as all you, you also pointed out, Ken, it's institutes a new hierarchy. Uh, it's about instituting a new hierarchy in the name of individuality and freedom, which is mm-hmm. a paradox that we've never seen before in
1: history. Never happened before or since. Except all Just in first century Egypt.
0: Yes. <laughs> and so uh, within Gnosticism, there's three types of people, the material, the psychic, and the pneumatic, in rough order of awesomeness. And you mentioned that, you know, some people are just out of luck. They don't get to see the Gnosis. But in a weird coincidence, Ken, if you want to join the Gnostics, And you determine, almost all Gnostics determine that, yes, indeed, they do have the divine spark that uh, allows Mm -hmm. them to uh, jump right in and uh, that their beliefs uh, match their practice, as we've already discussed, like anti-vaxism and like other uh, current conspiracies that overlap and intertwine with them. Of course, what does an organization of disagreeable individualists Put together, <laughs> and I mean d- disagreeable in terms of low on the agreeability score and their personality type. That leads to many sects with disunited beliefs, and mm-hmm. a lot of these are still you know very difficult to figure out exactly. Uh, not just who uh, believed what. Documentation kind of provides us with that, but what people were actually doing to follow their their gnostic impulses, of, of course, is even less clear. Uh, but one of the, the main strains, it was an ascetic strain, uh, which might, you know, fall into the whole cult of bodily purity. The, uh, you know, you got to protect your natural essence, just like General Jack D. Ripper wants to when, when fluoride is the basis yep. of this same uh, conspiratorial fear.
1: Yeah, the, the model between the anti-fluoridation conspiracy theorists who who saw fluoridation as a communist plot to make our teeth good. Um And the, you know, Bill Gates is putting his five G into our vaccines. It's almost a bright line. And certainly in terms of symbolic logic, it's absolutely the same thing. And what's interesting, of course, is that fluoridation managed to divorce itself from anti-communism as a conspiracy belief. And I think it was Portland, Oregon. It was somewhere in Oregon voted to defluoridate their water based on, well, based on nonsense, fundamentally. But this, you know, in Portland, Oregon, you know, God bless it, one of my favorite lumber towns in the Pacific Northwest, not really concerned about communism, <laughs> much more concerned about some other vague conjuries of evils, and somehow fluoridation becomes part of that. And so this is sort of the point that I guess we're making, is that this pattern, this memeplex, you know, jumps hosts because people are basically hardwired to believe nonsense and the, you know, predilection of, you know, well, obviously no one uh, believes in anti-fluoridation anymore because the John Birch Society is gone. Well, no, sadly, that memeplex jumps hosts in the same way that, you know, this basic uh, Gnostic structure continues to percolate even through um, a world that is vastly different from first century Egypt as ours.
0: Right. And the uh, the bodily purity is, I think, the nexus point at which the extreme right and the extreme left flip over into each other, because there's a connection between uh, spirituality, the divine spark within you and the purity of the body that's essential to narcissism and is also essential to various new age beliefs that think of themselves as hippy dippy and might be surprised <laughs> to find where some of some of that comes from and we'll i think get to that uh, in an upcoming episode a little more as well but to bring it back to to the the gnostics in this original period uh, one of the uh, sects that it, uh, one of the strands is libertinism and uh, if you've had your nation's capital briefly occupied by a uh, confusing convoy of uh, uh, so-called truckers, uh, and you can become a trucker apparently by renting a bunch of trucks is how they did that, and you saw that, what did they do immediately when they set up the protest in Ottawa? Well, they set up hot tubs, and a DJ theater, and a rave, and all of this uh, sort of crazy acting. at a
1: bouncy castle, I saw. Uh,
0: ba- uh, several bouncy castles, in fact. Mm. And uh, this is uh, not only a great example of postmodern propaganda, because its meaning as a sign is utterly baffling, but also Reflects, I think, the libertine impulse of disagreeable individualists who uh, manifest their freedom. Some of them want to manifest their freedom by going off in a mountain and, uh, and not eating anything, but it's far more uh, disruptive to going and be Yahooish. So the whole uh, Yahooish side of uh, Gnosticism, I think, is another interesting parallel. With, of course, the long-standing caveat that many of the fun sybaritic things that people supposedly got up to is uh, you know, just other people propagandizing against right. them in, yeah. in the historical record.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could certainly imagine if for whatever reason, uh, you know, uh, the January 6th incursion had lasted that the QAnon shaman would have been absolutely in a hot tub, right? You look at that guy and you say, this is not the guy on a mountain. This is the guy leading the, the, the fun hot tub party. And I feel like you have that same, you know, mix basically in any fringe culture. You've got. You know, let's pick the Nazis at random. I mean, you've got the sort of super ascetic, you know, you're Hitler, everyone's a vegan, you know, people are terrible, only dogs are nice, all the way out to Gehring, where it's all heroin and eclairs and stolen Rubens paintings, right? That it's that same vibe. And I think some of this vibe is just that once you're antinomian, once you've rejected sort of decency and order in whatever direction, you go in all kinds of crazy directions, and it, it a lot of this is just you know what you know. Society says your dice come up between six and nine, and if you do that, you're fine. And if your dice habitually tend to come up two or eleven, you're just gonna be wind up in an antinomian way, right? I, I think that there's there's a degree to which the the seeker finds the the, the lesson. Uh, as well as the notion that this memeplex suddenly makes you into hot tub party guy or a mountaintop ascetic. I, I feel like if you're naturally the kind of person who wants to boss everyone around and tell them you can't have uh, nice things. Or you're the kind of person who only wants to have nice things and not want, and doesn't want to listen to anything else. You're obviously going to object to a world that says we have to go work. <laughs> you can't do that all the time. And also, once you've worked, of course, you get McDonald's. That's your reward for working. And right, you know, the world... also It was
0: perfectly fair for the <laughs> yeah. the Romans to uh, confiscate the land you were working on right. and give it to some other uh, person who's now rich. Right. Yeah. Because there's that sense. I think uh, the the other element that I want that I think makes the analogy worth exploring is, uh, the idea that this is caused by social disruption, specifically the notion uh, of
1: dispossession.
0: Yeah. Right. So the next time the anti-vax parade comes down Bathurst street, uh, and I look out my window, there's a whole bunch of different people and a lot of different things uh, going on in them. But I, I, when I look out that window, I think some of those people don't know it, but I think they are Gnostics and, uh, I don't want to go out on the street and interact with them, but, uh, if I did, I bet I could sell them some Gnostic power juice.
1: Yeah, this is this is your opportunity, Robin, to build yourself a Gurdjieffian community of weirdos who drink your radium water. Oh,
0: uh, that seems like even
1: more work than writing. <laughs> yeah, it it really does. And you have to deal with those weirdos all the time instead of, you know, just when you turn in the manuscript to them.
0: And I'm not interested in abusing anyone particularly, so
1: that's... Yeah, well, well. that's, that's going to really uh, slow you down as a cult leader, Robin, I'm yeah. just going to say. Oh,
0: uh, well, in that case, let's do another segment.
1: Yeah, might as well.
0: The Best of
1: Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: And six guns role playing game, Western.
1: How do you say slap leather, Varmint, in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on Drive Through. Keep this podcast on a solid foundation alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Chihiro Yamada, Eric Parks, Evan Hughes, Garrett Fitzgerald,
0: and Todd W. Olson. The groaning of bookshelves, the clang of the bookstore cash register, and the smell of burning credit card in the air tell us we once more checking out Ken's bookshelf. And this is uh, the special DundraCon edition. And like any good DundraCon edition, uh, you've got books not just from California, specifically from the Recycle Bookstore in San Jose, Moe's books in Berkeley, California, and Dark Carnival books, but also... Uh, some uh, books from Florida, Parker's books and Brant's books. And uh, we've got a lot to get to, so many, in fact, that we're probably going to get to more of them in an upcoming episode, a couple of episodes from now. But since there are so many, enough further ado, and let's get right to it. So the first book on your exciting list here, I see a theme from this uh, uh, first tranche of books, perhaps a theme that is feeding into Hellenistica, and uh, the first one is more, I assume than just Hellenistic uh, though, because it's the Atlas of World Archaeology by Paul G. Bond.
1: Yeah, this is, it, it looks like it has some maps in common with the uh, Haywood Atlas of World History, but it detourns them or represents them as maps of archaeological happenings. And then there's archaeological information on the facing page. So, If you've already got the Haywood Atlas, maybe this is not something you need to grab, but I will tell you that it is a great little source for, you know, the cultures we traditionally associate with archaeology. Obviously, you can do archaeology about, you know, 20th century, but that's not what they're doing here. Going up to, I think, the Viking era in the West, you know, ancient China, ancient India, ancient Mesoamerica, all of those very uh, well presented. Those Haywood maps are excellent. I have not yet gone through it in enough detail to know whether or not there are more maps that are specially drawn for the book. But even if they aren't, the facing material is still pretty strong uh, primer on various ancient cultures, uh, etc.
0: Uh, Next, we come to Vestal Fire, an environmental history told through fire of Europe and Europe's encounter with the world. And I don't know, I doubt a little of the syntax of that uh, lengthy subtitle. That seems to be two subtitles, one of which is setting fire to the other. But it's by Stephen J. Pine.
1: Yeah, this one, uh, big environmental histories are interesting, obviously. The question of using fire as the meter is different. I think Cronon's Nature's Metropolis, which is I think, the first great environmental history that I read, used water. As its source, because again, it's about Chicago. So lakes and canals pop into mind. This one is about the taming slash, you know, burning to pieces of the wilderness. And you use fire as the metaphor and the literal tool with which you do that. Pine is, you know, coming at this as a historian. He's coming at this as an ecologist. If it's even half as good as the subtitles, as you say, um it's probably just as uh ideologically messed up as it is grammatically messed up, but it's going to have a lot of what i want to say um unusual perspectives on say you know Vikings uh versus the clearing of land that basically created the potential for the high middle ages uh all of those things are super important all of those things can be looked at apparently through the light of a fire.
0: We come now to a familiar name that is the name of Robin Lane Fox and traveling heroes, Greeks and their myths, in the epic age of Homer. So what does Fox bring uh, to the uh, party uh, on Olympus, uh, so to speak?
1: Uh, Fox is here talking about the 8th and 7th centuries BC, which is when Homer lived, if Homer lived. And of course, Homer lived, you monsters, how dare you? And his argument is that the sort of imagination revolution that is represented by homer is caused by the greek colonial experience where suddenly they're leaving greece they're sailing not just to the other side of the aegean but to the far reaches of the western mediterranean into the black sea north africa and they are discovering new landscapes and that these new landscapes then they have to reconcile the fact that this is a different mountain you know we're very far from olympus where's zeus and they have to sort of come up with well, Zeus is bigger than that. The the world is bigger than that, and this the world is bigger than that is both the sort of world war that is the Iliad, and also it is obviously the Odyssey, which is maybe the more directly uh, connected to the Greek uh, colonial experience because the Odyssey has, I think, with some degree of solidity been painted onto the Western Mediterranean, which is, as Fox points out, being settled by the Greeks literally at the same time that Homer is uh, composing the Odyssey. So you have the creation of these new myths that are being fed back into archaic Greece, which, again, allow it to become classical Greece, and that Homer acts both as the sort of transformer of these myths and the... Uh, exalter of them, but also as a way to explain the world back to the Greeks that they have been discovering. Like most Robin Lane Fox books, it's probably, you know, maybe a teeny bit of a bridge too far, but it's certainly going to be good Hellenistic of fun to go through and say, oh, look at that. This weird mountain in Spain gets written into the Greek mythology because the Greeks have to explain it somehow.
0: Now, I know what your policy can, that whenever you see a book that might tempt a role-playing game designer of weaker will to design a too complicated grappling system you buy it in order to protect uh, them from it and that's why you got combat sports in the ancient world by michael polyakov
1: yeah i mean it's basically and it says the ancient world but it very helpfully concentrates on combat sports in ancient greece so it's Got a hellenistical quality. There's a whole chapter on Pankration, which is their a sort of combination of wrestling and what we might look at now as as Russian martial art sistema, As well as boxing, stick fighting, all the other sorts of things that you did instead of actually, you know, <laughs> fighting each other in uh, ancient Greece and to a lesser extent Rome. Um I think if you want, you know, Roman combat sports, then you're getting into gladiator country, and that's a whole different book. Uh Polyakov is definitely the first half of that, the you know, boxing, stick fighting, and uh, pankration, and that makes it super interesting and super useful.
0: Now we have a primary text translated and annotated. It's the Argonautica by Apollonius Rhodius, and the uh, translator and annotator is Peter Green.
1: Uh, Peter Green is a, a, you know, one of the stars, a- A-list stars of classical history, and he's got a bit of a bite on him, as people know if they've read his books on Alexander the Great. And him translating and annotating the Argonautica is the reason that I got this because obviously the Argonautica is in, you know, many, many versions are online already. I don't need it to find out what happened. This is really something I got for Green's translations and annotations and mostly the annotations, quite frankly. And I've only briefly dived into it a little bit, but He does look like he's picking nits with delight, and that's one of the things we like about Peter Green.
0: Annotation Game recognizes Annotation Game. Exactly. This uh, brings us to The Historical Atlas of the Celtic World by John Haywood.
1: And uh, you heard me mention John Haywood before. This is one of those books that when I saw it on the shelf, I couldn't believe I don't own it. And maybe as I examined my haul further, it turns out I did, but I don't think I did. This is a large format book, lots of maps, and it goes back to about 4500 BC and down to pretty much modern times. So it's got, you know, modern Ireland and the modern Irish diaspora at the very tail end of it. I mostly picked it up because I'm looking for discussions of the sort of period in which the Celtic hill fort becomes the Celtic oppidum, and ideally with maps to indicate the extent of that difference. But obviously, something says historical atlas, if there's only a 50-50 chance I own it, I, I own it.
0: Next, we come to The Philosopher and the Druids, A Journey Among the Ancient Celts by Philip Freeman.
1: And this is a story about the historian and philosopher Posidonius, who in the first century BC circa 90 BC thereabouts decided he needed to learn the wisdom of the west. And in ancient Greece there was four mythical directions you could go. You could go east to India, well that had pretty much been played out. You could go south to Ethiopia, didn't want to do that. Possibly didn't want to leave the, you know, comfort of Mediterranean climate. Uh, you go north to Scythia, again, Herodotus had basically burned that one out. So he decided he was going to be the guy who went west and asked the Celts what was up. Uh the, the Celts at that time, sort of this mysterious people, every now and again, a little war band would come by and invade and it would be strange. So he thought, I'll go out and ask these guys what's up. And he's basically the only ancient source we have besides Julius Caesar for the Druids and for all manner of other things about the celtic world and with posidonius as with tacitus you have to sort of separate to what extent is he doing actual ethnography to what extent is he saying you know snotty things about the homeland but again he's all we've got and you don't actually see posidonius get a lot of study and so it was fun to see a a book about him so there we are yeah i
0: would think the amount of Additional material on somebody like like that would be very scant. That you'd have to do a lot of uh, work to all rope it together into a, a, a narrative.
1: Yeah, and, and like many ancient Greek figures, you know, we know the one book, and then we barely know anything else about him. So it's 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 good fun, obviously, to figure out what this Stoic philosopher from literally the most civilized place in the world, Rhodes, is doing out amongst the asterix and the Gauls. <laughs> and then, you know, just the fact that we've got a first person view of the Celtic world that we don't have from anybody else. That's pretty interesting.
0: And next we come to a uh, book in a series, The Armies of Ancient Persia, The Sassanians by Keva Farak.
1: Yeah, this is a guy who's a amateur military historian and has decided he's going to rescue the Persians from the obloquy of being sort of the Washington generals of the ancient world. We know the Persians almost exclusively from their defeats from Marathon, Salamis, Thermopylae, a, you know, a, a win that turns into a defeat in propaganda. Uh, then, of course, Alexander the Great just bounces them up and down the wall. And then they constantly go up against the Romans and constantly don't win. So he is trying to rescue them. And this is the first in a projected trilogy To my mind, maybe the least interesting of the projected trilogy, but it's a beginning. Uh, This book was actually uh, provided to me by beloved Patreon backer Charles Picard, who went and found it. So it's sort of a book haul, book haul, second order. Just wanted to give him the shout out because, you know, not only beloved listener, but also beloved book provider, and that deserves praise. And then it's just a straight-up military history the Sasanians. They take over, obviously. Everyone knows this uh, in the 2nd century AD from the Parthians and become a great military power for about 400 years. And to put it in its most basic, Farrakh says that doesn't happen by accident. And he's especially interested in rescuing the uh, bad reputation of Persian infantry. And he wants us to know that the Persians fielded perfectly good infantry, and how dare you? And I will be very interested to see what he says when he gets around to the Achaemenids, and uh, we start getting into a military history that I know a little bit better than I know the Sasanian one. Well,
0: now we uh, move from the ancient history to uh, somewhat nearer in time. Uh, we jump way forward to the Tropics of Empire, Why Columbus Sailed South to the Indies by Nicolas Way Gomez.
1: Yeah, this book caught my eye for a couple of reasons. One, it is gorgeous. It is a beautiful piece of book production. Second, it was super discounted. I think it marketed for 50 or 60 bucks. I bought it for under 10. So almost the physical joy of owning it was enough to get me to buy it. But the thesis is also interesting because it argues that Columbus is influenced by the Aristotelian notion that people who live in the temperate band of the world are naturally free people. And people who live up north are naturally horrible dog eat dog war people, and people who live to the south are naturally indolent and easily beaten up and enslaved. And this <laughs> this is Aristotle being Aristotle. Yeah. And perhaps maybe he was mad at the Egyptians, we don't know. But it is a thing that worked its way into not just classical propaganda, but into medieval propaganda. Right. And and, and because-
0: a useful thing to say if you're the one from the cold climate, conquering the other people. Exactly. They're naturally conquerable is a useful thing to say to the people that you're hiring to help you conquer them and also to uh, justify your conscience.
1: Yeah, there's a a lot of stuff going on. Uh, Columbus certainly took on many, many shed loads of dubious classical learning. And this is one of them. And this is, I mean, obviously books about Columbus fill shelves, but this is one of the only ones that I've ever seen that sort of engages with his engagement with Aristotle in that way. And the, the degree to which Gomez demonstrates it and illustrates it and sort of continuously goes back to Columbus as not just one crazy Italian, but as someone who is part of this, you know, classical project. Uh, it, it's a perspective on Columbus I don't see as often. And again, as I mentioned, the book is physically just gorgeous. So why not own it?
0: Uh, Well, so far, my favorite subtitle comes with Pirates on the Chesapeake, Being a True History of Pirates, Peekaroons, and Raiders on Chesapeake Bay, 1610 to 1807 by Donald G. Chomet.
1: And uh, believe it or not, this is not the only book on pirates (laughs) in the Chesapeake Bay. There's a number of them. This happens to be the one that I found. I love the notion that there are pirates on Chesapeake Bay, frankly. I assume that what happened is you've got uh catholic maryland you've got protestant virginia and you've got a lot of inlets on the coast and plenty of colonial authorities willing to look the other direction and that's what causes pirates to happen the notion that it goes down to 1807 is pretty whack quite frankly so i'll be i'll be very interested to see where they go with that obviously we know that blackbeard of course sailed around in north carolina so it's not that big a jump to assume that other classic era pirates were up in the chesapeake but I think this is really going to be about, you know, people uh, descending on other people's oyster fisheries and banging them around and, and stealing them across to Baltimore and or uh, Williamsburg ahead of the cops. Well,
0: boat crime is piracy if you say it is. Exactly. The New England Knight, Sir William Phipps, 1651 to 1695, by Emerson W. Baker and John G. Reed. He must have been interesting if it had two people to team up to write about him.
1: Yeah, he was, in fact, speaking of pirates, he was a pirate, and he became governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1692. So, that is a career. And the notion that he is a knight, he's capable of getting an actual knighthood, tells you something about the sort of fluidity of social lines in the restoration.
0: He might have brought back some of the things that he stole on a boat, and given the right people.
1: Might have done it. He, uh had all manner of, you know, various adventures as a pirate captain. And then, of course, he politically syncs up with the uh, King Williams uh, regime and becomes a knight and then gets to be governor of Massachusetts. So he's um, a pal of Increase Mather. So the notion that Cotton Mather is all super respectable and is his son's pals with a pirate. I mean, what's not what's not to love about this? So there's all manner of uh thing. And of course, he plays a role in the Salem Witch Trials as well, because it's under his jurisdiction that they happen. So it's it's quite a story with our, our boy Phipps. And of course, at the end of his governorship, everyone's yelling about why do we have a lowborn pirate as our governor? And he comes back to uh London and his last act is to commute everybody's witchcraft sentences just to shut everybody up and give them something to talk about. So maybe not the best person in colonial New England, but certainly one of the funnest, and certainly worthy of a even a biography by two guys, as you say.
0: Right. And and a massive witch pardon. That that I'm sure makes up for all manner of piracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of subjects that can fill entire shelves, we come to Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius by Lawrence Bergreen.
1: This is a straight up bio of, of Giacomo Casanova. I don't know to what extent it takes Casanova's autobiography as gospel truth. I hope not to much extent because Casanova is, you know, maybe one of the uh, first people to do autofiction well. And as we all know from everything we've learned about autofiction authors now, it's packs of lies. So I think that a lot of this is also Burgreen's opportunity to sort of talk about the world of the uh, 18th century. And you can sense that from the subtitle. I did check before I bought it. The Comte de Germain appears, but only on one page. So there we are.
0: And now we come to, uh, I guess, people who don't fill entire bookshelves. In the Shadows of Victory, America's Forgotten Military Leaders, 1776 to 1876 by Thomas D Phillips
1: and I should mention at the outset that uh, there is a sequel to this in The Shadows of Victory 2 that goes up to the end of World War II. the notion being that there are forgotten generals that we don't venerate as much as we ought and that these are mini biographies of those as well as generals who are more famous in other wars but they did cool stuff in the war before the one that they got famous and that should be mentioned so it's sort of pocket military history I don't know how obscure some of these people are to uh, normies. To me, when you open a book and you see that the first of America's forgotten military leaders is General Nathaniel Green, I think he's not that forgotten. And Dan Morgan, the famous uh, Captain of the Rifleman, General of the Rifleman, again – not George Washington famous, but I don't think Forgotten Forgotten is the way that I would describe them. But either way, maybe more underrated, which is a less exciting underrated, title yes. to put in your book or uh, underloved, because certainly Nathaniel Green, one of America's natural geniuses at guerrilla warfare, definitely the, you know, the the Fabian genius that saved America in the South. But is he underrated? I forgotten who can say. Anyway, that is the sort of thing that you're getting. You're getting a bunch of little potted military history biographies It's perfectly sound for what it is, and obviously, arguing with the table of contents is half the fun of a book like this. I certainly bought the sequel with my eyes wide open, uh, knowing what I was getting into. But Stephen Decatur, you know, he's not forgotten. They literally named a city after him. That's all I'm going to say on that.
0: Now, uh, we come to a title that I would expect to be in with the Elliptony, but it's still here in the history section, so I'm interested to know what American Messiahs, False Prophets of a Damned Nation by Adam Morris might be about.
1: This is about, and you could argue that it could go in a but this is basically the notion that America has thrown up an awful lot of cult leaders in American history. And this goes all the way back. Because
0: America is made up of spiritual questers and hucksters. This makes sense to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it makes sense to me, for God's sake. I, I live here and I proudly embrace all of those traditions. But this includes, you know, Father Divine, as well as Cyrus Teed, the Hollow Earth guy. It talks about, you know, Joseph Smith, all manner of sort of figures that you could argue uh, and in some cases, they were deliberately so. And I think that uh Adam Morris is somewhat making the argument that these cults don't just spring up because these guys are crazy. They spring up because of genuine social ills and the cults are attempts to address them. And so uh Father Divine famously, you know, was uh, working for civil rights back in the 19th century when that was <laughs> much harder. Cyrus Teed believed not only is the world hollow and we live inside, but capitalism was wrong. And the inner Earth is, you could argue, a reification of a psychological belief that the world should be turned inside out. That it's basically levelerism, and instead of a flat Earth, you have a uh, hollow Earth. So, this is the direction that Morris is going, and that's why I think it goes in history, not in the Leptony.
0: And finally for this segment, we come to... Machine-Made Tammany Hall and the Creation of Modern American Politics by Terry Galway.
1: And this is everything that it says on the tin. This is just a history of Tammany Hall. And I picked it up, first of all, because uh, Tammany Hall is the prototypical American uh, political machine in New York City, founded by the lovely and talented Aaron Burr, and then, you know, <laughs> gone from strength to strength to strength. The, the book says it does not shy away from the underbelly. The seamy underbelly of Tammany Hall. (laughs) And I was like, in fact, we are promoting it here, here in the promotional text. That's all belly. (laughs) The the overbelly, the glossy back fur of Tammany Hall is what needs a look at. I think everyone knows about the seamy underbelly, but it's, uh, you know, by God, because Tammany Hall became basically the conventional Democratic Party machine in New York. Good for you, Terry Galway, to try and square that circle, uh, <laughs> but uh, I feel like Terry Galway believes that New York should be governed by a Democratic Party machine, and he's just trying to figure out why it's not so terrible that it's Tammany Hall, while also talking about the notion that Tammany Hall becomes the prototype for uh, political machines in Boston and Chicago and other American cities that have them.
0: Well, that's a lot of books, so it's time to uh, cleanse our ears. With a uh, very beautiful, well-shaped commercial message, and then we'll be back uh, with uh, some more exciting items from Ken's Hall. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF. Or in standalone paperback modules.
1: They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural.
0: By masters of top secret mythos horror, Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb
1: Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears.
0: In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan
1: war. The Last Equation. A gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread.
0: Lover in the Ice. A bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all
1: too ready to spread. Sweetness. Vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass.
0: A woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of
1: witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione. Crazed words scrawled at a crime scene hint at Yohanath Lai and the sea. The Child. A
0: traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease.
1: Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now
0: before it grabs you. So let's start this uh, chunk with The Space Elevator, a revolutionary Earth-to-space transportation system by Bradley C. Edwards, Ph.D., And Eric A. Westland.
1: Um, Yeah, this came out, I think, in 2003, I want to say. So it's not, you know, cutting-edge space elevator knowledge. But on the other hand, I guess it's still, because we haven't built one. This is the sort of hard, science-y, but also not actually possible economically uh, kind of book that you see every now and again. I've got a book about, you know, flying a balloon to Mars. I've got, now I've got a space elevator book. It's all good stuff. Um, The notion of the space elevator I think goes, you know, back into early science fiction. And this is a a book on, you know, how to take those airy notions and turn it into hardcore engineering. And I believe by hardcore engineering, a lot of it is wait until they invent nanoparticles. But the notion of tensile strength, I'm sure is going to be covered in it. My understanding is it can't be done with anything we can build now, but we can see it from there. Maybe that's, I got that notion from someone talking about this very book. Either way, you know, you put a space elevator in something, it's good that someone else has done all the math, and who better to do the math than an actual PhD?
0: Now we have another classic name coming up, Jan Morris with a Venetian bestiary.
1: Yeah, this is not necessarily just about, you know, the, the lions of uh, St. Mark. This is about them and other sculptural animals, but it's also about the pigeons and the cats and the other animals that live in Venice. It's sort of an amuse-bouche book. Uh, Morris, obviously, scholar of Venetian history and art, and in this case just wants to write a book about animals, and I want to own a book about animals, so we are in agreement. Speaking
0: of people and or animals who live in places, Permanent Parisians, an illustrated guide to the Oh, these people are not in great shape. An Illustrated Guide to the Cemeteries of Paris by Jody Culbertson and Tom Randall.
1: I feel like the last person I need to explain why I bought this book to is you. (laughs) There are others. There are people listening to this. Author, as it were, of the Yellow King role-playing game, but I bought it because, you know, Paris cemeteries are where ghouls live. We know this. This is a Trail of Cthulhu scenario just waiting to happen to the extent it's not a Yellow King scenario waiting to happen. Good fun had by all. I think it's probably more meant as a tour guide book, but I believe I've said elsewhere that tour guide books are just uh, role-playing game books that don't have any stats in them. Right.
0: And, and spoiler alert, most of the cemeteries of Paris got emptied and put in the Yeah,
1: but that was the old ones. Now, we got the new ones with Jim Morrison and whatnot. So,
0: good fun. Speaking of uh, things uh, ghoulish and gothic, Ascending Peculiarity, Edward Gorey on Edward Gorey, edited by Karen Wilkin.
1: And this is a compilation of interviews that Edward Gorey gave over his lifetime, so obviously good fun. Somewhat edited to take out every question being the same in some of the interviews, but basically it's an attempt to get Gorey to unload on not just his art, but on things that interest him. Early on, a lot of the interviews tend to be about the ballet, which he was a famous devotee of uh, George Balanchine's City Ballet of New York, and of course famously designed sets for uh ballets and operas and then also introduced ballet characters into his fiction so lots of good stuff edward gory endlessly fascinating figure to me in that he's an eccentric writer slash genius who had a bunch of cats and didn't care what anyone thought and dressed like a weirdo so what's not to love also a chicagoan Another good thing about Edward Gorey, admittedly, being a Chicagoan involved leaving Chicago just as soon as he was of legal adulthood. So maybe maybe not an exact parallel there.
0: Just like being a Canadian, being a Chicagoan is if you're there for even a while, you're
1: right. you're Exactly. Club. That's why Ronald Reagan's a Chicagoan. He was there when he was two.
0: Speaking of pictures of things that are gothic gothic and illustrated history by
1: roger luckhurst Uh, luckhurst is a scholar of the gothic i think he's at oxford maybe i'm wrong he's at some university in britain he did a an okay uh edition of lovecraft but mostly he is about uh, the history of the gothic and this although it is called an illustrated history is not that it is an illustrated typology of the gothic so there's a chapter on weird pointed arches and a chapter on weird forests and that kind of thing. And so it talks about, you know, the Gothic North, East, West, and South. It talks about Gothic in space. And it sort of has a fairly broad understanding of the Gothic. And then I think Luckhurst, as indeed do I, considers a lot of modern horror fiction and art to be expanding on Gothic themes or built on Gothic foundations. So he draws a a broad net, but it is a beautiful book. I actually bought it new at Moe's Books, just because it was so good-looking and interestingly organized. And again, Luckhurst is not a bad scholar. He just didn't do Lovecraft quite the justice that I would have done him. But he's still, he knows his gothic, so it'll it'll be a good book.
0: Next, we uh, go down under for The Dawn of Time, Australian Aboriginal Myths in Paintings. These are paintings by Ainsley Roberts with text by Charles P. Mountford. Uh,
1: This is another find from beloved Patreon backer Charles Picard, who found it in, I suspect, our uh, library bookstore in Lafayette and thought it was for me. And indeed it is, because the notion of Australian uh, mythology, like all world mythologies, is endlessly fascinating. The Australian Aboriginal mythology is even more so because it's a living belief system it's not like greek or norse mythology that only uh weirdos on american college campuses still believe in this is a a fully existent religion and then to see it interpreted by an australian painter is interesting on its own level so i think it's just it's a good looking book obviously it's not very heavy going because it's mostly about the paintings less about you know ethnography or you know levy straussing up the the, the australians uh, certainly an, an excellent book for the purpose
0: more art and mythology with de delos and the origins of greek art by sarah p morris
1: this i suspect is sarah morris's version of the old east Face of helicon theory which is that greek mythology and poetry came out of anatolia that the reason that the greek mythology seems to echo and rhyme with Mesopotamian mythology or Hittite mythology is that that was in fact the arc of transmission. So in a way, it's the opposite of Robin Lane Fox's thesis. It's not seeing a mountain in Spain that makes you create Greek mythology. It's hearing mythology about a mountain in Turkey. So the figure of Daedalus is apparently whom Sarah Morris decides is the, is the core figure. I would not have thought that that was the way to go. The uh, father of architecture, not necessarily a poet, but I'm willing to listen, and again, it's an interesting thesis, and it's certainly pregnant with material for gaming, even if I don't quite buy it myself.
0: Right. And from the interesting thesis that you don't quite buy, that brings us, ineluctably, I think we're headed into the land of woo now, is this correct?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we have Tamson Barton's Ancient Astrology.
1: And I don't know to what extent Tamson Barton is a believer in astrology, and to what extent She is a scholar of ancient astrology, and of course, one can be both. This looked like a pretty solid breakdown of the origins of astrology in Greece and Mesopotamia, and then the practice by which horoscopes were cast in the classical period versus how they're cast now. But again, it will take a closer reading than I have done to determine whether or not Tamsin Barton has uh, a finger on the scales of Libra, or whether or not... She is merely presenting Ancient Beliefs, Aren't They Wild?
0: So, uh, might be about woo, might be woo, But, I, okay, let's see. I, I'm sensing a bit of woo in this title. Hunab Ku, 77 Sacred Symbols for Balancing Body and Spirit by Joel and Karen Spearstone.
1: This is one of those big, pretty art books. It's, you know, got 77 symbols. I'm a sucker, I guess you'd say, for anything that tries to... Take the entire artistic and psychological richness of human beings and pull it down into basic symbols. I think that's the attraction of Jung for a lot of people as well. And, you know, I'm, you know, you you got a tarot cards, you got your Hunabku book, you've got anything that tries to, you know, unify these things down, I'm I'm gonna be a sucker for it. It doesn't hurt that this book is gorgeous. Beautiful art for those who are not aware. The actual hunab ku thing, it's sort of a A cross-like symbol. And so a lot of people said, Oh, this means that the Mayans were monotheists. And no, it turns out it's more of a Mayan symbol of the entire cosmos. And it just, the cosmos has four corners like cosmoses do. So, but anyway, it's good fun and the actual book, you know, physically a gorgeous thing, regardless of how, you know, ludicrous the quasi-Jungian ideology behind it is.
0: That brings us to the Ancient Paths, discovering the lost map of Celtic Europe. And this is by Graham Robb. Ken, what is the lost map of Celtic Europe, and who lost it?
1: I think that the hated Romans lost it. The Ancient Paths is basically a, I don't want to say respectable, because I don't think it is, but an attempted respectable ley line book. And the notion that there are these sort of ancient alignments that the druids set up between various uh, sacred sites, mountains and, uh, you know, groves and whatnot. And then it turns out if you plot them on a sufficiently small scale map, they make a straight line. And I don't know that this is a discovery that Graham Robb gets to have made. It was made a uh, lots of times. Uh, there was a book about it called um, Elysia that was destroyed in a, a Nazi air raid, in fact, in 1940. And so at the very least, the Nazis doing their part to, to keep that knowledge out of everyone's hands. But Graham Robb, God bless him, has a map and a ruler and he's not afraid to use them. So I'm a little bit lighthearted about it. I think that Graham Robb feels bad about having written a ley line book. I think he's one of those people who's a real scholar in one field and stumbles into the not particularly aligned field. Uh, in this case. Again, yeah, I think he began as, like, a literary critic or something.
0: But, but Lay lines are okay if you feel bad about them
1: afterwards. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, it's... it's as, as a Calvinist, I can't argue with that thesis.
0: King of the Celts, Arthurian Legends, and the Celtic Traditions brings us yet another book on the Celts, and this one is by Jean Markel.
1: Yeah, this is one of the many books that purports to find the real Arthur, and in this case, the real Arthur is the Celtic demigod. And Markel, I believe, began as a scholar of Breton folklore, so I will not be unsurprised to see that the real Arthur hangs out in Brittany a lot for some reason. But the uh, notion that Arthur is a Celtic demigod who is then superimposed onto a historical figure is the one we've talked about not even that long ago in the podcast. But I feel like Jean Markel is also going to try and have his cake and eat it too and say, Celtic demigod for sure but also a real boy, and I think that this is where we put Markel amongst the Wu and not amongst the historians of the 6th century Dark Ages.
0: Well, we move our Wu to the Vatican now with The Sistine Secrets, Michelangelo's Forbidden Messages in the Heart of the Vatican by Benjamin Black and Rory Dolaner.
1: Yeah, I don't know to what extent this is just standard old art interpretation. Oh, that uh, halo means that he lives in the West, and to what extent it's going to be Michelangelo was a Freemason! Um, I feel like it's going to lean as far as it can in the one direction to sell the book, while leaning as far in the previous direction as it can to retain some degree of self-respect by Bletch and Doliner. The phraseology on the inside flap made me think that they're real art historians who wanted to sell a book, not real crazy people who wanted to write nonsense about the Sistine Chapel. Yes. But I could be wrong. And again, they could be both. Our artists of
0: of Michelangelo's period filled their work with allegorical meaning it was like in every jot and tittle so it may just be that someone stuck in the word forbidden to sell it to the uh, Da Vinci Code people, and it's exactly. it could be an entirely straightforward. If, if
1: all I have is a, a straightforward art historical interpretation of the Sistine Chapel, I'll be just as happy. Well, not just as happy, but I'll still be happy.
0: Next, we come to A Book of New England Legends and Folklore in Prose and Poetry by Samuel Adams Drake.
1: This, I think, is an old classic. You can talk because folklore is two words. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it was written in 1884 by a Massachusetts journalist. And it's, you know, it is what it is, right? It's, it says what it is on the, on the front. Back in 1884, you didn't mess around with fancy allegorical titles. If you had a compendium of legends and folklore in prose and poetry, that's what you said you had. And that's what we have. I've got other compilations of New England legendary. Uh, this one was both inexpensive and had an index, which I think are my, are my key buy a folklore book or don't buy a folklore book. And again, yeah, it's probably available on Gutenberg for free, but it was very, very reasonably priced, and I think worth it for anyone who wants to think about Lovecrafty in New England, either as a game designer or as a critic.
0: Yeah, I think something like that would be great if you are uh, writing in period or setting a game in period. You can see what the actual take on folklore at that time would have been, so you're not back-projecting or forward-projecting. Right. Now we come to The Jombie Dance of Montserrat, a study in trance ritual in the West Indies by J.D. Dobbin. And I'm gathering from the academic formulation there that we're looking about this area of the occult rather than being in the new age section.
1: Yeah. J.D. Dobbin, I believe is a straight up anthropologist. And he was asking the question, given that we have all of these other cases of Afro-Caribbean religious ritual all over the Caribbean, why don't we have it in Montserrat? Because I think Montserrat sort of Presented itself. It's an island in the West Indies, in the you know out there by Dominica and Grenada and those. And it presented itself as basically just a regular old island. Nothing, uh, nothing to see here. I believe that there was sort of a horrific ethnic cleansing that happened on Montserrat a while back, and so they would see well, nothing's left of that. And J.D. Dobbin goes to Montserrat and says, "You can't get rid of a religion quite that easily." And found as you know, the book indicates. Trans ritual going on in the form of the Jambi dance, and the Jambi is a sort of generic term for spiritual power. You might be familiar with it as Jambi, I think, in American uh, conjure folklore, but that's basically where it comes from. It's this West Indian term, and uh J.D. Dobbin has dug it up in Montserrat, and that means it's one more island for my Afro-Caribbean- Uh, religion shelves.
0: And uh, speaking of that, finally, for this episode, we come to Sacred Leaves of Candomblé by Robert A. Vokes.
1: Right. Uh, This is an ethnobotany. I think that many people are familiar with The Serpent and the Rainbow, which was an ethnobotany of Haitian Voodoon. This is an ethnobotany of Candomblé, which is the Brazilian version of the Afro-Caribbean religious complex. Candomblé is, I believe, the oldest of them. There's lots of uh, more recent calved-off versions of it. Uh, Vokes, I assume, Went around, you know, ethno botanical style and asked practitioners, what's that you're chewing and got answers. And so I know nothing about uh, any of this except that I assume that like most uh, religions that spent a good long time hiding out in the forest from Portuguese slavers, you you learn to eat things (laughs) in the jungle and those things took on magical relevance. Yeah. Some of those things you eat more than once. Exactly. And I assume that Robert A. Vux has done a, a journeyman job of digging up or plucking, I guess, harvesting even, uh, the sacred leaves of the titular Ah uh,
0: Well, once more, we've harvested an episode of this podcast, but we'll be back uh, next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspagon, Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software
1: music as always is by james simple audio editing by rob borges support our patreon at patreon.com backslash ken and robin
0: keep this podcast's bookshelf from collapsing figuratively and perhaps literally by joining such backers as
1: james stewart hyperlexic jonathan donald james kiley
0: and john buckley Wear the show or drink it from a mug with ken and robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Get a jolt of non-Euclidean caffeine from our latest design, Strange Brews Coffee.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.